Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The pursuit for food has taken us into the wilderness, across rivers, and atop mountains. These journeys have connected us to the wild. It is this connection that allows us to experience the wild places this world has to offer, in search for both wild game and adventure. This is my adventure for food. I think if you force any hunter to answer honestly, uh, every one of them has a favorite animal that they pursue. I mean, I enjoy turkey and deer hunting, and I have you know fond memories of chasing rabbits over beagles, and and there's still something really special about you know cupped up mallards dropping into decoys. But uh, if I had to choose one thing to hunt. For the rest of my life it, it would definitely be canada geese um you know for a long time the sight of geese big long lines of geese making a lot of noise it's, it's hypnotizing for me and and i'm a stereotypical hunter when i see geese on the side in fields or flying you know i'll almost drive off the road to, to follow them uh and this is a story about about uh, really the start of that that uh, this lifelong addiction for me so I was, I was 15 years old the first time I went to goose camp uh, here in Ontario and Canada. At that time, there wasn't an apprentice hunter program. Uh, you could take the hunting education, education course, but uh, you couldn't become fully licensed until you're 15 years old. Uh, and I'd been on other goose hunts, you know, as a tag-along kid, one-off weekend hunts with, with my father from the time I was, you know, 9 or 10. Um, but those... Uh, early season trips to the goose camp that, you know, my father and my uncles and my mentors all told stories and reminisced about, you know, to my, to my, you know, pre-adolescent and then teenage mind, those seemed like mysterious, distant, adventurous expeditions. And, and, and as they started, you know, pictures from these hunts began to make their way into our, our photo albums, you know, I, I just got more and more eager to, to start hunting geese. Um, so this was in the mid 1990s. And, and Ontario's early resident goose season opened then, and it still does, typically during the week of Labor Day. Uh, and I can't specifically recall 
the exact date of that first season, but I remember very clearly like everything leading up to it. It was literally, you know, like leading up to Christmas for me. I remember buying my migratory bird hunting permit and I remember organizing and going through, you know, what then was just a little bit of hunting gear, you know, shotgun and shells and, and, and baseline camo and rubber boots, but not a lot of the gear. And I remember really first and foremost, I remember my dad calling my high school to let them know that I wasn't going to be at the first week of school. We were going on a, on, on a family trip as he called it. Um, so we piled into our family van, you know, our next door neighbor and my dad and I, uh, and we made that drive to the camp. It was about a you know, two and a half, three hour drive. Uh, and the camp was a, was a family friend's ranch house. Uh, it was spacious, but it was rustic and it was off the beaten path a bit. Um, so we got into camp and we got set up uh, in camp and we had a good meal and, and we planned the hunt and, you know, my uncle came by and, and we sort of formulated a plan for the next day. And that first morning, you know, instead of being in my first homeroom class of that school year, you know, I was, I was up before the dawn having some toast and jam, uh, slipping on what was then, you know, just a, a light set of camo coveralls because it, it was the first week of September. It was warm. And we went out and I slid in some rubber boots. Uh, and I remember very distinctly that it was really humid and it was very foggy, super thick fog. Uh, and we only had, you know, minimal gear. Uh, we had maybe a dozen decoys and we put them in the vehicle and we, and we drove down to the field that we were going to hunt. And this was really the start of what have been high times for goose hunting in that part of Ontario. You know, for a long time before the, the early and mid-1990s, you know, there weren't goose hunting specialists. There were waterfowlers. But you might not see or shoot 10 geese for a whole season. You know, that year... I think the daily limit was five geese. It was the really the start of, of a peak growth in opportunity and plentifulness for Canada geese. Um, so the numbers had been on the rise and many areas had expanded bag limits and opened early resident bird seasons and what have you. And before I could hunt in those early years, uh, I remember hearing stories of those morning shoots in the early season. Uh, you know, at the time, it was common to shoot a dozen or more birds. And that was a lot for, you know, us at the time. And, and again, there was no specialized goose hunters. The, you know, that we even had decoys was a bit of an anomaly up there. There weren't guys that at that time even, you know, invested in goose decoys. That we had 12 big goose decoys that we could carry in, you know, uh, was was uh, unique. And, and I remember my dad had an old honker goose call. And he was one of the only guys that I knew up there. That even had a goose call. So again, it was it was it wasn't like it is now. Uh, and that call, I remember, and it's, we still have it. I have it in my house here somewhere. You know, it, it made a vaguely goose-like honking sound, but that was about it. It wasn't like the the later flutes and short reed calls that, that speak the whole vocabulary. So it was very Spartan. You know, our this early early forays into into goose hunting. Uh, and our setup was really simple. We had a dozen decoys, and we. We had six hunters, I think, that day, if I recall. I'd have to pull the pictures. But uh, we just basically set up around the perimeter of a cut grain field, and we spread the decoys out. And then we would hide in the in the grass or the ditches around the side of the field. And, and a few of the hunters would be closer to the decoys, and, and others would cover what we call the shoulders. And, and you either you know pass shoot birds that don't commit – or if the guys in the decoys get shooting, then you'll mop up birds as they kind of fly away. 
Uh, and again, this was the, the early 1990s. Lead shot was still legal. And I remember very, very clearly like pushing those rounds of three-inch number twos into what was then a brand-new 870 shotgun. Uh, so around this field, there was a sapling uh, that I, I knew was there. And I remember going under that sapling, and it still had lots of leaves on it. So I was well hidden. And I remember leaning up against that sapling and, and just waiting for the, the hunt to start. And it was dead still and very foggy. Um, visibility had to be under 20 yards. And, and I knew there was obviously other hunters that were there with us. And we knew where we all were going to be stationed. It was safe. And I had a friend of mine, Andy, uh, just maybe 60 steps down the line to my left. But he may as well have been in another county for as much as I could see. But that was how we set up, and, and it was dark, and it was foggy, and and it just felt very serene. Uh, and there's moments in, in a hunter's existence that I think become permanent to them, you know, and it's not just every hunt, although every hunt, you know, has probably some of those moments, but, but there's moments that loom large sometimes, and this, there's a memory from this first flock of geese that day, and, it, and it's, and as long as I can have that memory, I'm going to have it. We were hunting uh, a few kilometers uh, south of a large roost pond uh, in a swamp, and it was so still, and you heard, you could hear those geese get up uh, and start flying in, in that foggy, still morning. Uh, and as they were coming, they were just making this constant racket, because um, I think they were dealing with the fog, and I think they were trying to communicate with the, with the whole group. Uh, and I, I could hear my dad a few times calling on that goose call, and then he stopped. He's, he's very minimalist in his calling uh, because the birds knew where they wanted to be, and it was where we were, and we were going to be waiting. So the din of the geese just got louder and louder, and, and I remember my heart was thumping with anticipation. I still get excited about it, talking about it now, and and the fog and and the anticipation. I was I was right on edge. And uh, I almost jumped out of my skin when my friend Andy, to my left down the line, fired two shots. Uh, and then he shouted to me that they were coming towards me, uh, the flock. And just my grip tightened on the gun, and I was you know, poised over the safety. And just seconds after that, the geese materialized, is the word I would use, just out of the fog, sort of in front of me and over the field. And I remember rising up to my knees and swinging, and I fired once at a bird that was closest to me, and it folded and hit the ground. And before I could swing on another goose, it's just like they evaporated back into the fog, and all you could do was hear them sort of moving away and, and just uh, you know talking very consistently, just making a lot of goose noise, which is a sound I just absolutely love to hear. Uh, and then just a few moments later, further down my left of the field as though they were spinning out of the field. Uh, another one of our group uh, lit into them. Uh, and while that was happening, when that all stopped, uh, I walked out and I picked up that first goose of mine. And I remember picking up its feet and I and just struck by how big the, the feet were on a goose. Uh, I'd seen them before. It wasn't the first Canada goose I'd picked up, but just that was stuck in my mind that it had just big black feet. And I wish I could say something like profound, about that moment, about, you know, connection or about, you know, uh, something primal or, or beautiful. But I was frankly just still vibrating from their just ghostly appearance and disappearance that, 
that I really couldn't process everything. And uh, so my friend called down the line and said, did you get one? And I shouted that I had one, I had gotten one. And, and he said that he had gone two for two with his shooting. And I just moved back to that sapling and sat down and, and set the goose down in the, in the grass next to me. And I just kind of looked at it in that kind of gloaming early dawn gray light and, and just kind of took it in. And, and I, my friends have joked about it and I was probably a, a pretty easy soul to convert at that point. But at that point I was just a hopeless devotee, and hooked to goose hunting. There was nothing that was going to make me not want to go back for those feelings uh, of, of encountering birds in that way and uh, and just being able to, to, to harvest them that way. So this group moved off, and you could hear them. And then it just got strangely quiet. Once they either went back to the roost or they went to another field where they could settle down, uh, it was quiet for, a long, for a, quite a while longer. And then you could hear the next group get up. And this repeated itself as the morning drew on and the fog got burned off until eventually you could see them coming before you, you know, as you could hear them. And I was able throughout that morning to get, I think two, two or three more birds, maybe. Uh, but you know, before 9am we had as many geese on the ground as we were interested in, in cleaning for the morning and consuming. So, so we called it and there were still birds flying around while we were cleaning up. And, and as any goose hunter knows, that's probably the most guaranteed way you can ensure that birds are going to come by your setup is to go out and stand up in the field and pick up your decoys. But we, uh, we listened and we watched as they flew around for a bit before going back to the truck and heading back to camp. Uh, so that morning, you know, before we had breakfast, we butchered the birds back behind the ranch house. And in the early season, you know, as much as I would love to, to be a purist on this, early season Canada geese aren't always the best for, for plucking and keeping whole. So traditionally in those early September hunts, you know, we break them down, we skin them, we take as much as we can uh, in terms of thighs, drumsticks, taking the breasts off. And and I remember, again, my dad very meticulously cutting out the what he calls the tenders, and that's a strip of meat that's tight to the breastbone. And if you've ever cleaned a, a goose in terms of skinning and breasting a goose, they're actually a different color of meat. You know, the, the, the breast meat's sort of this very deep, almost purple red, and then that tender that's closer to the to the to the breastbone is a lighter pink um and i remember him winking and saying you know these are a special treat and and shortly after all that work was done we'd washed hands and we kind of you know finished that bit uh those goose tenders didn't go into the into the rest of the meat to be distributed they became part of a just a what was a massive post-hunt breakfast you know scrambled eggs and bacon and fried goose tenders and toast and and uh and it was just you know, that one of those traditional feasts, you know, birds that had been flying just hours before, you know, giving you those moments of exhilaration. And, and now they were on your plate and we were just kind of sitting around in that silence of, of a group of hunters eating together. And, you know, I'd grown up with wild game regularly on the table. My, my father was a hunter. My grandfather was a hunter. We ate wild game weekly sometimes between venison and duck and, and 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 uh, and moose meat and stuff like that. But this was the first time. This was truly the first time that I'd been a contributor to the meal that everyone was eating. There was geese that I had I had harvested that were in this breakfast, and that's another feeling that you know that feeling became a memory. You know, just like the seeing those geese in that morning fog, that realization, that connection to to the the hunt, to the food, to consumption of wild game. 
it just became very, very real to me at 15 years old. And it's, and it's stuck with me now for, you know, a long time. It's been over 25 years since that September morning. And, and we haven't hunted that field in almost as long. You know, um, that sapling is a tree now. We drive by uh, to go to other space spots to hunt. That field's not far from where we hunt deer every year. And every time I drive by that field, I look over and I see that tree now. And I'm still reminded of that morning. You know, and that simple morning, that simple hunt, you know, that's also evolved into this thing that we do as a group of friends. You know, we have big, ultra-realistic ultra decoy spreads now. And we've all got expensive goose calls, $100, $200 goose calls. And, and we've had even higher volume shoots. There's more geese now than there ever were. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to shoot 30 or 40 geese in a day now. And we still, you know, that first goose camp, even though it fully initiated me into what I think I am as a hunter, you know, it still also made very clear in my mind that connection between the wild game to the table. And, and even 25 years later, that core group has stayed more or less the same. And, and even though some of the hunters that were hunting with us that morning, you know, they were older generation, they've passed on, you know, we still get together as a group that are still around to, to hunt and to laugh and still geese from the morning hunt find their way onto the plate. Uh, both in the camp and then also, you know, long after the decoys and the calls are put away. And that, that connection from that Saturday morning, or that, I guess I should say that September morning, I can't even remember if it was a Saturday or not. I think it was a, a Wednesday. But uh, that's just been the the moment that sort of made me uh, a hunter and made that connection to wild game really strong in me. And that's my adventure for food. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.